best animal name you've ever heard? Mrs. Pinkerton. She's a sphinx. She was amazing. Welcome back to Astronaut Zookeeper podcast. I am the art teacher formerly known as Miss Willis and I am on a mission to catch up with former students to see what career paths they've taken and what advice they would give their 14 year old self all with the aim to open up the imagination for young people when it comes to life after school and I am joined by the wonderful, I'm just going to work out what I'm going to call you, um, Vicky, no, Tor, <laughs> what is the podcast? Hello. Thank you. <laughs> I, I, I feel like we're in your house, your home. So, I, you know, I can't welcome you to... I'm welcomed into your home. <laughs> anyway, anyway, welcome. Thank you. And so you are a vet. Mm-hmm. Is that the technical term? I'm a veterinary surgeon. Oh, okay. And you may refer to me as Dr. Victoria if you would like to. Oh, right. Yeah, there are, there are letters after the name and yep. all that. Go through the letters. So I am B Vet Med, M R C V S. Soon to be additional cert S A S, which is an additional surgery qualification. We're going to start off with uh, what you wanted to be when you were five. Can you remember? So I've wanted to be a vet since I was able to understand that people had jobs. Um, I think it started when I was about two and I had a goldfish called Tilly and I cannot remember ever wanting to be anything else from a very, very, very young age. I was quite certain that this was what I was going to end up doing. And did you know at that age that a vet was somebody who, um, I was about to say repaired animals, (laughs) looked after animals and, or did you, did you just know that a vet was somebody who, who was around animals? I knew that a vet was somebody who looked after animals when they were poorly and made them better. That was Mm. the sum total of my understanding of what it was to be a veterinary surgeon at that point. Obviously, I knew you as a teenager. Mm -hmm. And from what I remember, I do remember you wanting to be a vet as a teenager. So did that just continue, get stronger? I, yeah, I was very driven as a teenager. I think I was about 12 or 13 when I started volunteering at my local vet practice Um, and by the time I was 15 or 16 I had a paid job as a Saturday girl um, on the weekends I spent all of my weekends kind of basically if you're a if you have a Saturday job at a vet's your role is to clean and tidy up after the vets if you were to describe what a vet is to an alien you know like you would um not using any sort of what is the fundamentals of being a vet welfare protector welfare protector and i would say maintaining health and curing disease of animals those of animals those those would be the the main things and the welfare one is something that people often forget when you think about being a vet can you define welfare for us a little bit the well-being of your patient um for me i find the biggest thing so dogs can't talk cats can't talk (laughs) shock horror (laughs) sorry if you didn't know that um and a lot of the time 
when they display anxiety or pain, the owners don't see it. So they expect a dog with pain to limp or howl or whine or flinch. And a lot of the time they don't do those things. They don't cry, they just carry on because particularly for dogs, their main motivation in life is making people happy. They, they love it, they feed off how we feel. Um, and I have a lot, particularly arthritis patients who are very old and the owners haven't noticed because it's been a very slow thing. I, it's my job to explain to the owners that their dog is in pain and show them how they show me, but they're all very kind of subtle things. Mm. And a lot of the time owners don't recognize it until they kind of begrudgingly accept the painkiller trial that I've given them. And all of a sudden their dog behaves like it's a puppy again. Right. And they go, oh my God, I didn't realize that they were in pain. And it's it's very true because Mm. they don't express pain the way that we do. And as a a big part of my job is helping animals communicate with their owners about how they feel. When you're telling people what you do for a living, um, what would you say the most common misconception is that people have? What do people think you do? The biggest thing, people think that we're really rich. (laughs) Really? People think that we earn loads of money. Why is that, do you think? Because of vet fees, so... There is no NHS for pets. It's all funded by the owners. So we're not used to, because we have the luxury of the NHS, we're not used to understanding what things cost. Mm. And there have been some great comparisons online in America as to a 20-year-old man broke his leg and a 3-year-old Labrador broke his leg in the same fracture, in the same bone, in the same leg. And they cost out what it costs for the human versus the Labrador. And actually, the human is 10 times more expensive in a place where you have to pay for that treatment. Right. Okay. But because we don't have any exposure to that, people are very shocked at what things cost. Within where you're practicing now, what types of animals do you treat? So these days I just treat, I say just, cats and dogs mainly. I do quite a lot of rabbits, um, hamsters, guinea pigs, rats, mice, the odd tortoise, the odd bird, the odd chicken, but mainly cats, dogs and rabbits. So pets essentially pets yes have you ever um sort of treated sort of farm animals etc so when i first came out of university i had a mixed practice job and mixed practice basically means that you do everything so i was working as well as with the pets i was doing um, horses cows sheep pigs all of that stuff as well on top of all of the pets can you give us an example of where you've had a really, really good day and where you've just felt like, yes, this is why I'm doing what I'm doing? So the biggest ones for me are the trauma cases, so the accidents. So you'll have a normally quite a brief phone call with somebody who's very upset on the phone. Normally they scream a few words at you and then you say, okay, come straight down. Um, and then you greet a very distressed owner you ask for consent so authorization that you can do basic life protecting procedures as you need to um and then we get the patient 
stable we deal with any kind of major things like if the animal's not breathing or if it's got really big bleeding or anything like that we will deal with that make the patient safe and then go and talk to the owners about the things that we need to do and for me the best ones are where you have an animal who is really badly injured and you're able to a few days later return that animal to the owner healed better happy let's let's look at the flip side so give us a day where it's been really really tough what what is the worst part of of being a vet the worst part of being a vet is when things don't go right and they don't go to plan um not everything is fixable but also everything unfortunately because there is no nhs everything has a price tag and the worst ones i would say are having to put a patient to sleep because of cost so for example um female dogs if they are not spayed um when they get older they are at risk of getting infections in their uteruses Mm -hmm. which is life-threatening and requires emergency surgery to the tune of about 1500 pounds and the real frustration of those is that if the owner had just done a normal spay when we told them to it would be about £200. And then they present with this very sick dog and say, I've got no money. And then we have to put that pet to sleep. Right. When it's something okay. I know I can fix. Could have been avoided. That is is horrible. Um, and often you get comments like we touched on before of why can't you do it for free? If you loved animals, you would do this for free. And, and the simple answer is that we can't. Um, but you still do get that one kind of come back at you quite a bit Um, and the other thing I would say is probably social media so when things do go wrong we are human you know we're not invincible we're not magical we're we're just human beings doing the very best that we can do and sometimes things don't go the way that you want them to and with social media people can write all sorts of things online and because we by law cannot discuss clinical cases on an internet forum we can't tell our side of the story and so we find that we get shamed online quite a bit by things that are not true or exaggerated and there's just no way to defend yourself in that kind of situation that's so tough I I mean I wouldn't have even thought that that would have been a an issue and I suppose obviously it's a it's a, a modern day issue but that can have a huge effect right on the morale of staff and it has a massive impact so, so if anyone is listening to this and, and, and considering uh, being a vet as a career, it, it's, it's vital that they, they have those communication skills and they're aware that a lot of the time they're, they're dealing with members of the public in, in you know, heightened stress state, etc. Yeah. It's not all about it's, working it's with animals. It's definitely a job working with people primarily. The animals are the bonus and kind of the nice bit. Um, but it is hugely... I spend probably six hours of my day talking to people mm. most days okay um so it is certainly a people job yeah. and if you don't like people don't go into the profession <laughs> do you have average days are there things that you do more often than others on an average day I say there's no such thing as an average day being a vet um so i have two types of days um one is a purely consulting day um which basically means that I spend six hours 
of my day standing in front of people examining their pets I get 15 minute slots one animal per 15 minutes if you run over it then becomes a little bit of a catch-up game Mm. um but yeah diagnosing doing things like boosters as well vaccinations so annual vaccinations to keep pets healthy um and anything painful or anything that's worrying the owners they can come in have a consultation and have an exam of their animal and we can chat through what we need to do um my other type of day which is my preferred type of day is my operating days so i spend an hour in the morning admitting my patients so that means examining the patients that i'm going to operate on that day talking through with their owners about what's going to happen what we're going to do with their animal whilst they leave them with us and then we get all of the medication ready to send the animals to sleep so that we can do operations on them. Um, and then I run through my theatre list, which often will include things like neutering. So taking away testicles and uteruses to make sure that nobody can breed anymore. Um, little lumps, dentals, so general anaesthetic unfortunately we have to anaesthetize our patients to clean their teeth with a scaler because they try and eat us if we don't um running tests having inpatients who've got perhaps medical conditions that need ongoing treatment and need to be on drips and things like that um and then i will spend the last two hours of my day doing routine consulting so again boosters and things like that um and also discharging any complicated patients back to their owners and giving them all the instructions of how to keep them safe and well after the surgery and if there's anything special they need to do okay and then lunch in between all of that. <laughs> what's lunch <laughs> What's the largest animal and then the smallest animal that you've worked with? I think the largest animal is a Clydesdale, which is a really huge horse. Okay. Is that like a Shire horse? You're bigger. Oh, bigger. Okay. Yeah. Um, And it was at a stud farm so he was a breeding boy and he couldn't pee so I had to put a urinary catheter into his bladder to help him pee (laughs) and I had to reach up above my head to get to uh, the business end to put the catheter in to help him pee wow he is a big boy did he then pee over you no okay you got out of the way my my dodge is good (laughs) and then the smallest thing is probably one of the creatures that I'm most terrified of um and that is a Robinowski hamster um they are absolutely minuscule and they they bite anything and everything and they're so fast and you just have to cup your hand over them but as soon as you cup your hand over them to catch them they just sink their teeth in how do you know when to put an animal to sleep and is it the worst part of your job we'll do the second part first okay absolutely not the worst part of my job okay with the exception of diseases that I could fix that I'm not allowed to because the client can't afford to right those I find really heartbreaking when I could have done something if only they had had insurance or had budgeted for things like this to happen those are really horrible um but the vast majority of the time I feel that it's a privilege that I'm allowed to let animals go in a very peaceful calm pain-free way um as to how to decide um it's a really hard one it's really hard and I think whenever anybody makes a decision like that there's a huge amount of grief that comes with it and guilt 
because we're not allowed to make those decisions in human medicine, it's very unique to the veterinary side to make that decision. And you're making that decision for something that can't tell you whether that's what they want. But I often tell people to write a list, particularly with chronic diseases like arthritis and pain and things like that. I tell people to write a list of all of the things that their pet loved doing and lived for so for example i have a crazy labrador called maui he loves to eat he loves to play with his toys he loves to chew his little bones and he loves to go out for walks and play with other dogs and i get people to write down all of the things that they know that their dog loves and once the dog does not want to do or cannot do 50 percent of those things right to say that's enough i find okay. it helps to have it on a piece of paper to be able to quantifiably see no they can't do this anymore he used to love playing with his ball but he can't run around anymore and justify to themselves and also it's helpful afterwards to have that list if anybody's having kind of those thoughts that always occur of did I do it at the right time to be able to go back and look at that list and see yes yeah that that was that was the right call to do um, okay, money question. So mm-hmm. you, you've kind of referenced that people think that you make a lot of money. So is there, how does it work when, uh, so if you're, you're training, um, is there a starting salary? How does it all work? So there's no kind of across the board starting salary. It kind of depends on where you work and who you work for. Um, that will be lower in kind of more rural areas um and obviously like if you're working in central london you get things like london waiting and the jobs are higher paid um but have a guess what do you reckon what do you reckon i go on what do you reckon my starting salary was i don't i really i'm really rubbish with things like this because i just know from a teacher's point of view um twenty thousand Okay, it's 21 and a half. Okay, so similar to... With five years at university and £60,000 of student debt. Yeah, that's, that's, <laughs> yeah, that's low, isn't it? Because, uh, so, so in comparison to how long it takes for it, so it takes six years for a doctor to train, train, does it? I think it's five. Okay. I think they're both five. So, and so it's five years, okay, so it's a long time. It's a long time. Yeah. Yeah, um, and... So when I say £60,000 student debt, that is on the old fees. That's on the £3,000 a year tuition fees. Right. So the £9,000 ones, so that's £45,000 in tuition fees alone, mm. plus forty-five for accommodation bills and life. So that's £90,000 that these days vets are coming out with student debt. It's huge. That's insane, it's isn't enormous. it? Right, yeah. So putting that all into into context. Mm. Um, so does it, in terms of that salary going up, is it based on experience um, then? It's based on experience and also what you can do once you start to be able to kind of pick up the same rate of cases. So when you first start, let's put this into perspective. So a normal working day for a normal vet when you're consulting so you're seeing patients you're seeing one patient every 10 to 15 minutes which is a very short period of time to talk to the owner 
examine the patient, make your diagnosis, give your treatment, put it out, send them away. Yeah. It's a lot of stuff to do. New grad vets often will be given 30-minute blocks so that they have enough time to be able to do all of that because there's a lot of thinking involved. Mm. And particularly when you're new, it doesn't just roll off the tip of your tongue you have to spend some time thinking before you then go and talk and explain and you can't remember what the drug dose is so you have to go and look it up in a book and then come back um if you can then start to be picking up your cases in the same rate as your colleagues so doing 10 15 minute appointments and you start to be able to do operations without having another vet in the operating theatre with you then you can expect to see your salary start to rise Mm -hmm. Um, and then you will kind of plateau probably at about £40,000 unless you are doing something further training wise or you're buying into a practice and becoming a business owner. What route did you take to getting where you are now in your career? So I took triple science i don't know if that is that still a thing at school um there um, yes yeah? okay. well there, there I, are different types of i think different schools do different things okay. but yeah you can do so i took all the science all subjects the i possibly could um because you definitely have to have a basis in chemistry biology and physics um so this is gcse gcse yeah um and then i did my a levels after my gcse's i again looked at the entry requirements for the universities that I wanted to go to first. Um, So I did chemistry, biology, maths, and I did art as an AS over two years. Um, I did my all the way up to A2 on my chemistry, biology and maths. And again, I just use art as a bit of an escape and a bit of me time, which also managed to get me a qualification on the side, which was quite nice. I finished my A2s and then I found out in the summer after my A2s that I hadn't got the grades that I needed to get into veterinary medicine. So I'd been through the interview process. I had two offers. I had them sitting there waiting and they were AAA offers. And I got ABC and I was devastated. Uh. I was absolutely devastated and I spent a few days in a in a little hole being really really sad and feeling really really sorry for myself and then I picked myself up and I looked at the reapplication process and the resit process I spent ages going through all of the universities and all of their kind of procedures as to what to do if this happened I was offered a couple of clearing places for non-vet degrees and I didn't want to take them Um, so I didn't Um, and then I decided I was going to take a gap year and in my gap year I got a couple of tutors particularly to help so my problem was I really struggled with the maths and so I got my tutors and I basically sat I made myself a little room in my house I sat in the study and I taught myself and I had my tutor sessions and I pulled myself through my A-levels and I got three A's on my resets. And I had one offer. So I didn't get the repeat offer from Liverpool Vet School that I had had in the first year. But I got my repeat offer of three A's from the Royal Veterinary College. And so off I trotted. My message would be that if you really want it, you have to put the work in and you have to fight. But just because you've tripped at one hurdle doesn't mean that you have to pack it all in. If you really okay. want it go for it even if you have to go the long way around 
if someone's listened to all this and they're still like (laughs) (laughs) of course are there any kind of sort of practical tips and sort of tricks that you could offer somebody sort of three things that that now would be really good for them to do find as many types of animals as you can so springtime is really good for approaching local farmers um can i come and do some lambing can i come and help can i watch Mm -hmm. dairy farms horses catteries kennels it doesn't have to be within a veterinary practice although some of it does you also need to expose yourself to as many types of animals as you can dog walking for people um Mm. you know cleaning out in a local groomers and when you start once you land a job or a volunteer position in a veterinary practice, don't be disappointed that your jobs are sweeping and mopping and tidying. Yeah. Because at the very beginning, that is the best that you can do. And don't be expected to be kind of helping people wrestle with dogs, despite the fact that you've had a dog for your whole life. Nobody's going to let you hold the angry Rottweiler for a blood test. It's not <laughs> going to happen. Um, so just be kind of grateful for any opportunity. Um, the more grateful you are the more likely you are to have doors open for you for other things and approach as many people as you possibly can don't be afraid to phone people and ask if you can help in any way shape or form huge thanks to victoria for coming on the show and chatting with us about what life is like as a vet If you are interested in becoming a vet, then go to our Instagram account, which is at Astro Zookeeper, and you'll find Victoria's follow up three. And these are very useful, practical pieces of advice that you can follow if you are thinking about pursuing this as a career. And of course, as ever, thank you for listening and we will be back very soon. (laughs) 